There's um, obviously great food that has come from that region, the Auvergne. What dishes might we know from there? Um, I think we are known for uh, sausage, like dry sausage, saucisson sec, cheese, you know, from d'Ambert, uh, Saint-Nectaire, yeah. and maybe for all dishes, maybe uh, uh, in poté, poté Auvergnat. So it's like a, a cabbage too. So nothing sophisticated, but definitely great in winter months. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk right and photograph it. But above all, they love it. I wanted to change it up a little bit on Fabulously Delicious. Each week I've been bringing you delicious episodes revolved around a specific topic. We've had Cantal cheese, confit de canard, burgundy wine, to name just a few. And then we've gotten to know the guests who are experts on the topic. But in season one, I had the pleasure of chatting with renowned chefs like Philip Tezza and Gabrielle Gatte. So I wanted to dive a bit into French life and bring you a different Fabulously Delicious episode. Going forward, every now and then, I will have an episode devoted to a French chef who's either here in France or around the world. We will discover their love of French food, their career journey, and their life becoming a chef, and what led them to French cuisine. So today, it's the first of a two-part chat with a French chef that has made his home in Canada. He was born in France and trained to be a chef here, moved to the US and then settled in Canada, where he's now the judge on the very popular Great Canadian Bake Off. Bruno Feldenstein is a wonderful chef that despite a difficult childhood and young adult life in the kitchen, has risen to be one of the best French chefs in North America. There's a lot to chat about today, but first up, I wanted to ask, you grew up in... Uh, um, no. Pardon my French, Bruno, but uh, I'm an Australian with a really bad accent. I will try and get it correctly. Uh, Clermont Ferrand? Yeah. Is yeah, that right? A, um, it's a great rugby town. Yeah, we have an amazing team. Uh, not doing so well this year. And it's Michelin Tire's hometown. Right, okay. It's near the Auvergne, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's right in the centre. It's It's been looked down by a lot of French people as the uh, kind of the armpit of France. You know, we are looking, Parisian definitely look down on us like we are, uh, you know, rednecks. And, but um, it's okay, we love it. I often hear about Parisians looking down on people, but I wonder, is there any real Parisians left anymore? I mean, you know, you have to, there's all these rules about how you can call yourself a Parisian. I think it's a reflection of French society, you know. French society, it's a very elitist country. So if you make it to Paris, you're superior to anybody else. There's um, obviously great food that has come from that region, the Auvergne. What dishes might we know from there? Um, I think we are known for uh, sausage, like dry sausage, saucisson sec, cheese, you know, from d'Ambert, uh, Saint-Nectaire, yeah. and maybe for all dishes, maybe uh, uh, in poté, poté Auvergnat. So it's like a, a cabbage too. So nothing sophisticated, but definitely great in winter months. Where, where I grew up, there is a, something called pompou graton. It's like a, a brioche dough, very dense, with, a, with a pork rinds inside. It sounds pretty good. So not very rich in diversity in terms of cooking, but defi definitely very uh, down-to-earth rustic food. 
Your childhood wasn't exactly the idyllic French childhood, living in the countryside of France, etc. How did you end up then in the food industry? Was food really important to you in as a child when you were growing up? Yeah, it was, but I wasn't conscious of it. So yeah, food, I think food is important for every French Anybody who lives in France, food is important. <clears throat> so it comes, it comes with, uh, once you're born in France, food is important. Like when you're born in Austria, in Austria, ski is important. I think we don't realize it. So, so it wasn't a dream of mine to become a, a chef. My dream was to become a pilot. I wanted to fly planes all over the world. That was my childhood dream. But again, in France, being such an elitist country, you know, the school are very selective. Um, so I didn't do well in school. And they, they look at you down as, you know, you're not worth it. So we send you on the side to our school system. And, uh, and um, you know, I was like, you know, I need to do something with my life. And then one day I was walking down a little town and I saw a chocolate shop that's been around for over 100 years who were looking for an apprenticeship. And I think I find, when I did my interview, the boss told me that he was driving Porsches and BMW. So I told myself, mm, you know, maybe that's a job for me. And But really, I fell in love with the smell and the scent of melted chocolates. That's how I started. <laughs> it was like 15 years old, and I went for the interview with no plan, and that became the plan, you know. Similar to myself, you had grandparents that were from Italy, So, but you had a grandmother that was there. Do you have many memories of her and, and her cooking? Oh, yeah. We, uh, we used to make gnocchis from scratch. And I remember making gnocchis with boiled potatoes, a little flour on the table, and uh, one or two egg yolks. And, you know, we do by hands, and then we use a fork to roll it. And our tomato sauce wasn't like with fresh tomatoes. We will always do tomato sauce with a um, tomato paste, water, olive oil, butter, and herbs and garlic. So it was a different, it was a very oily gnocchis with tomato flavor. Um, you know, when I grew up, I don't think we had too many kind of tomatoes. We have, uh, for what I remember, only one kind of tomatoes in the supermarket, you know. And that was to make tomato salad. You never make tomato sauce with it. That definitely not in France where I grew up. So tomato uh, paste, maybe because it was the uh, the way to make tomato sauce for the poor people, I guess. <laughs> but gnocchi definitely with my grandma gnocchis, and we used to do. You know, she grew up in North Africa, so she will do a wonderful couscous. She will do escabeche. You know those, uh, you know, pickled sardines with olive oil and. Uh, onions, and uh, so that was my side of the Mediterranean cuisine at home. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm a first generation born in France. My family was German-Italian. And then um, and then my grandfather was German-born, you know, in Berlin, and his food was the total opposite for my grandmother, you know. He was, he was uh, black, dark bread with pork fat on the top. I don't think he knew what butter was. It was just pork fat everywhere. Um, we will make cheese head. I remember going to the market to buy a pig's head, and then we will boil it for hours, shred the meat until you only have the bones, and chop it, put parsley, garlic, onions, and cook it in a ramekins to make a cheese head. 
So um, fabulous. But one thing my grandpa will eat at night late will be cold pasta with sugar. With sugar? Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, he will go in the fridge, get the spaghettis like they were cold, put sugar or jam actually, and then he will eat it. And you know, it's like starch and sugar technically. Well, we must try that. I think I'm going to have to try that one. You have a son now. Do you cook with him? Um, we do. It, go, it comes in phases, you know. Uh, He's a teenager, isn't he? Yeah, teenager. Yeah. So the attention span <laughs> is very limited. And uh, so we need to find specific occasion to do it. And I need to tease him with it. We, I need to get him involved. So we, we you know... I, I think it's just not the cooking part, but it's buying, how we buy it, what we choose. Uh, why do we buy that cut of meat? Why don't we buy that one? You know, it's just to teach him good food education, I guess. And then I try to get him involved when we do the preparation, which is a bit more challenging now. Uh, I will say when he was five, six, seven years old, it was easier. Now it's a matter of finding the right time, finding the right opportunity, and get him excited, you know, because if I don't do that, it doesn't lack anything. You want to do this? No, 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 no. But when we go out, he's very curious. He always wants to try new dishes. So his mind is very open to anything that's, you know, not straightforward food, I would say. You know, being in Vancouver, we are blessed of enjoying food from India, from uh, Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Italy, from Portugal, from Spain. So it's a very rich um, diversity thanks to immigration. So we can get some amazing uh, butter chicken next door and, you know, he will, he will eat it. In my kitchen too, I have cooks from uh, northern India, so uh, uh, Punjab. And this weekend we were eating some of the sauce and chutneys they made for us. And it's, wow. it's unbelievable. You know, it's even hard to describe the sophistication of flavors, the layering of flavors. And that my son really enjoyed. He's like, wow, you know, this is so good. So, you know, I think for kids, it's more than just cooking with them. We have to, it's an education, it's a discovery. And, but being in Vancouver, there is definitely an amazing part of it, you know. Uh, he's obviously having a very different childhood to what you had. I wanted to ask because you've you're on record. You, you've talked about it quite openly in the past about being in the foster system at a very young age, and and also you were very young, like myself. I started my first job when I was fifteen, but I chose to leave school to to work. Did you choose to start a job at no. such a young age, or was it, you forced to do that? No, well, I was definitely again. I'm being I'm going back to. Uh, the school French system, which I hate. I think it's uh, the product of the elite. You know, we are producing the elite for the country. And I remember, you know, an anecdote when I moved to the States, I was 22. And my first job, there was a waiter who was 40 years old who was telling me, oh, I'm, I'm going back to law school. And I didn't believe him. I said, this is bullshit. You know, you don't go back to school at 40. Until I realized in the US, yeah, you can go back to school. You can become a lawyer at 70 if you want to. And I, I was like, you know, this is such a great education system where you, uh, you're you not channeled early on, you're not forced. You know, my choice wasn't to leave school when I was 15. I really wanted, I think I was good, I was a good student, but you always come down to your teacher and 
you know, the, if you have a great teacher, it's great. If you don't have a great teacher, your grades are down and you have no recourses. You have no, um, you know, at least 35 years ago, maybe today's difference. But, uh, you know, I see my son in school today in Canada. It's, it's embracing, it's nurturing, it's building a kid. It's not punishing because you have bad grades. You know, in France, you're still being punished if you don't have good grades. In Canada, you're being helped, you're being nurtured, you're being encouraged. And that's the difference of the school system. You know, at the end, it, work, it works great for me. You know, I look back at my career and I'm like, you know, it's a blessing. But, um, you know, what about the others who didn't succeed? What about the all my friends, which I know are not doing well? And, you know, I was lucky. I was lucky too to go to work with the right people at the right time, um, you know, to build a resume early on for what I had was, I, I think I did it with no plan, but I did build my resume right away with big names. And of course, that's just putting you on the right track. Do you think that because you mentioned a couple of times now about being first generation French, do you think that you, because you had a, your, you had grandparents that were Italian and German. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you really felt French? No, I never. It's funny you say that because, you know, my family grew up, my grandma grew up in North Africa. She arrived in France because of the independence and her first experience, and she was French, she was French citizen, but she'd never been to France. And she told me when she arrived in Marseille with nothing, they have to live in a hurry. A French woman, went to see her at the railway station, spit in her face and told her, go back to your country. So I think it set the tone for my whole family that, you know, I think my, my grandma never was never happy. I think she died miserable because she wasn't dying where she wanted to die. And, and you know, from that, I think I never felt I belonged. Plus you had the component of so social background too. So, yeah, I mean, my first reaction was whenever I can get out, I get out. And and lucky when I work in France, I have in our kitchen, we have a lot of young Americans working with us. Guy from Newport Beach, you know, and we're still friends 40 years later. Guy from New York, and they always tell me, you know, say, come, come to the U.S., you're going to love it. And, and there is nothing like someone who's cool from California. They take <laughs> being cool to a level that... We cannot achieve in France. And was this young kid from Newport Beach, uh, Patrick Glennon, who was Irish American from Newport Beach, Newport Beach in California, a surfer, blonde, blue eyes, a fantastic cooks. You know, he will kick ass. He will kick the French cooks ass in the kitchen. How good he was. And we became friends. And he kept telling me, he said, you know, come over, come over. You know, you're going to love it. And, and we became good friends, you know. No other French likes him because he was great and successful. And he actually he never cooked. He only cooked in the kitchen because he needed money to surf in the south of France. That was his goal. And, um, and um, you know, I find what means to work hard, to have a goal, and to enjoy life. I mean, the guy was a party guy, yet he was a fantastic cook. And, uh, and royalty too, you know, 40 years later, we're still friends. And I don't think sometimes you, you see this in France in the kitchen, you know, French kitchen. And I think it's changed a lot, but when I was in France, it's very, 
uh, one-dimensional. You know, we believe we are the best in the world, and we are not. We believe French food is the best. Yeah, of course, it's structured in a way that is very rich. The ingredients are amazing, the skills. But in the other hand, it does not open it to be embraced by the world in terms of technique. You know, um, you know I was amazed. 25 years ago, I would buy a magazine out of Australia. It was Vogue Entertainment Australia. And I was amazed at the quality of the food in the food section, you know, the restaurants. And I'm like, this is amazing. That country is like 10,000 kilometers away from France. Yet, they have their own culture. They develop something. And I think France, you know, it's changing. It's getting better, you know. But we're still stuck in an old mentality where we don't embrace change. We don't embrace um, immigrants. I mean, look, France is a country of immigrants. We should, you know, London has the best Indian restaurant in the world, and they, and they cherish it. In France, we don't have the best Arabic country in the world because we don't. And that's, it's, that's sad. That's sad, you know. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways you can do this. But one of those ways is through Patreon, the link of which is in the show notes for this episode. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can receive exclusive content just for you. So check it out. I'm sure you will enjoy. And also, it's a way of you supporting me and the podcast and more fabulous French foodies. So what better thing to do than support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a Patreon member? In France, I don't understand how you can have such pride in French food, but then you can do things like put cream cheese on sushi or we can, you know, like have Indian food that has no spice whatsoever to it at all. Why has it got to be changed for the French palate? Because the French are that way. They want it. You know, this mentality, and I know when I travel, when I go back to France, the first things people told me, oh, you cook, you, you show them how to cook great French food. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't cook what I cooked 10 years ago. You know, I cook what's relevant, what's trendy, what's available. You know, yeah, I use French technique, but I don't cook French food. I, I, I cook what I, what's the surrounding inspire me. And I think French are different. French are, wants to cook French food. And, you know, there is a lot of young generation of immigrants in France who are doing well, but the establishment is not comfortable with them. There was a video of, uh, I think it's a chef, uh, from Togo, uh, I forgot his name, he's in Paris. And they invited him with Michel Blanc to cook a classic uh, poulet de bresse. But he made it with uh, his, Af- his African influence. But you could see on the video Michel Blanc, uh, uh, yeah, Michel Blanc, I think, how uncomfortable he is around him. How, you know, and I'm like, I'm like you know, come on, dude, open your eyes. It's, you know, it's, it's a future. It's the way it's going to be vibrant. You know, I think French, um, you know, I follow a lot of stuff on Instagram about French chef. And yeah, there is something amazing in terms of pastry. But I look at some of the food. It's like, what? You're going to charge me 50 euros for that? For what? Because there is movement of harm. There is all this gallantry around. And I'm like, I don't even enjoy it. Give me something substantial. You know, I just saw the last review of 
the Georges Cinq restaurant by what's his name, um, the food critic in England um, from the Guardian, I think. And you read it, and it's full of humor, but he is so right, you know, that how pompous and arrogant French food can be. And it's sad because French food is not that. French food is very down to earth, you know, but it is still sold as an arrogant, pompous form of uh, culture, which is not. But, you know, it's more complex because when I moved to California, I was 22. And, you know, French wine, I remember when I was young, I would visit wineries. You're looked down because you're not part of the establishment. And I remember moving to California and going to Chalon Vineyard in Central Coast. And I was received like, they don't care where I'm from. They don't care if I was educated in wine. But the door was wide open and a tasted wine was was amazing. Chalon Wines was, you know, and all over California is like this. Everybody enjoys wines. So I think, you know, um, the Spanish did it. You know, they created that food culture, modern, vibrant, and they stole it from the French, you know. Um, today, the, the food capital in Europe is not Paris for me. The food capital is London, you know, it's Amsterdam. The excellency we have in France is a product, the produce, the farmers, the small artisan. That's a strength for French cooking, I believe. So your first job you mentioned before was in a chocolate shop. It was quite a prestigious one. Yeah, you know, it, they, they, they were around for 100 years, 100 years. And the equipment must have been 80 years old. I mean, everything was running with a big, a big belt system. And the floor was just concrete and uh, uh, sawdust. Um, you know, very old. But, and we will make everything from scratch. Praline, pralines, uh, candied orange. So it was a very seasonal job. So in summer, we will do all the, the liquors. So, you know, with, uh, uh, with uh, cornstarch in big chambers. I mean, you go home, you're like white. And then we will do the candied orange. We will, we will get almonds whole. We will boil them to remove the skin, make marzipan with it. So it was a very, I learned a lot, like, you know, uh, yeah. And in winter, we will do all the truffles for Christmas. And it was nonstop. I have a great boss. My, uh, my maître d'apprentissage was a fantastic man. And he became almost like my, my first father figure around me, you know. Learned a lot, learned the, uh, the principles, the basics, the respect. Uh, not easy, you know, but actually it was a kitchen with very little bullying, um, which was good. But uh, that, w- that was good for me. That established parameters, uh, a strong platform and good working skills, which helps you when you turn 2025, 20, for sure. And your apprenticeship was for two years and you finished it with a kind of perfect uh, exam, is that right? I think I scored one of the highest scores in the whole academy, all over France. All, all the, you know, the, it's called a certificate, so CAP, Certificate of Apprenticeship Professional, Certificate Apprentice Professional. And I think my score was 380 out of 400. Um, yeah, I mean, I got the medal, I got the certificate. and Pretty amazing for a, a kid that's grown up in a foster system, you know, yeah, to you know leave school back, at 15 to do that. Yeah, um, it was easy. It wasn't, you know, sometimes it's hard. But, yeah, I remember I cruised through it and my boss was elated because, of course, he make him look like an amazing instructor, which he was. <laughs> but after, you know, the recognition as a, as a boss, as a professional was uh, huge for him. For me, it was just the first steps of 
with that, I mean, you know, he told me right away, you need to go to Paris. You, you cannot stay here. You have to go. The world is waiting for, for you. And I moved to Paris to work at, you know, a, a higher level of expertise, technique, like the way they do it was amazing, flavor-wise. Um, I worked with an amazing, uh, what was his name? Michel, uh, I forgot his last name, but he was a chef, um, you know, down to earth, very good as his technique. But unfortunately, I did experience a lot of bullying in that kitchen and sexual harassment as well. And um, so I decided to, to live after a year and a half. And uh, then a stroke of luck, one of our, um, we had a, somebody came to do a stage with us. <clears throat> and this guy was Frédéric Robert, and he, Robert, and he was uh, Alain Ducasse, pastry chef. Now, uh, keep in mind, I have no idea who Ducasse was. And actually, at that point, Ducasse was still very... Um, <laughs> and we call him Dudu. You know, his nickname was Dudu. And Dudu was an, almost unknown. I think he only had a star Michelin. And he wasn't in Monaco yet. And then one day, uh, Chef Ducasse called me. And he's like, you know, Frederick talk, spoke to me about you. He said, you're amazing. I want to hire you as a chocolatier for a, a new project. And I say, no, because I have no idea who he was. I'm like, no. And, wow. Because, you know, if you work in shops, it's a different world compared if you work in restaurants. Yeah. So I say, no. And then he called me again. He said, you know, Bruno, come, you know, I have this huge project in the Basque country. You're going to love it. And I want to hire you as a chocolatier. I decided to, to go. I said, yeah, you know what? Let's take a chance. And I go. And that was the, the jump into the restaurant world, the hotel world, I think, which is very important if you want to succeed. If you just stay in pastry shop, in stores, I think it limits your expertise. It limits the dynamis, dynamism of what you can do. Restaurant is a different ballgame. It's, it's, it's a faster pace. It's nonstop. And you do meet a lot of great people from all over the world. Working in commercial kitchens is a, a very stressful environment. You've mentioned already about bullying and, and even harass, sexual harassment there. Uh, do you think that your experience in childhood and as a teenager helped you to, you know, there would have been a lot of people that would have just stayed in that job because they had to, you know, because that was the only job. Do you think that helped you to have the, the courage to go, no, this isn't for me and I've got to move on and take the next step? Yeah, well, I always knew that, you know, to protect yourself, you either have to fight. And, I, you know, at my age, young, I will take a beat up, but I, but I will never back down. Or you just be a bit smarter and just move on. You know, I think the circle of abuse, it's very hard to get out. And, and some people get stuck at work, miserable, and they don't know how to get out. And I'm like, because, you know, you built your world around it. And, and they make you feel like, you know, you, you deserve that job and you deserve the abuse. But with my life experience, I knew that you don't. You just have to uh, punch back your way out. And so I'm like, yeah, I don't need to take that abuse. I, I need that job and I need that on my resume. But once my year is done, I'm, I'm out and, you know, there is other things. So, um, you know, some other kids stay because that's all they knew and they were afraid. And, you know, and, you know, at that time in France, if you open your mouth, you'd be blackmailed. And I think still today. 
Do you want to support Fabulously Delicious, the podcast, and learn more about French food? Then join me and some of the wonderful people cooking it and producing it. Hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. This is your weekly French food news. Drought is raising concerns for food production in France. The French Agricultural Ministry has warned that the impact of an unseasonably hot and dry stretch will have an impact on cereal production in France following lower-than-average rainfall over the winter period. As well as wheat, other crops sown in winter, such as barley, are in key development stages in May, while corn and sunflower production over the summer might also be affected. Water restrictions across France are being implemented due in part to a 20% drop in rainfall from September 21 until April 2022. French authorities have stepped up their investigations into an E. coli outbreak linked in pizzas made by Nestlé. There have reportedly been 56 cases and two deaths from Boutoni brand Fresh Up Pizzas. The Paris Prosecutor's Office opened a criminal inquiry into the incident. Charges include the involuntary manslaughter of one person and injuring of 14 others, and marketing a product dangerous to health. A judicial inquiry is led by an investigating judge and has opened at the request of the public prosecutor to carry out such a highly complex investigation. More than 50 children are part of the 56 cases reported. What would be your fondest memory, on a brighter note, what would be your fondest memory of working in French kitchens in France? I think the friends I made. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those kitchens were hard, long hours, <clears throat> but you rely on each other. Even with the abuse, you help each other, you, you, you lift each other. Cooks on the same level. You know, then there is a sous chef, which is a different ball game. Then there is chef de party. But as a line cook, you do help each other. You you do compete too, but you know what it takes. You know the uh, the sweat. And yeah, the friends you make, and because you all live, you all arrive together, and you all live together. And um, so that's I will say, the fond memories because it was comforting in difficult time. Uh, you know, if there was. A fight that will be between a cook and a sous chef or a chef de party. And I've seen them, you know, uh, fighting in the fridges, in the coolers, taking the punch, but rarely between cooks. I think the cooks, you know, and, and we will see the first woman in the kitchen too, the first, um, um, you know, and those girls took a lot of abuse because let's face it, a lot of French chefs don't like women in the kitchen. I mean, <clears throat> look, I, I spoke up once and I say, you know, you, took, you look at Paul Bocuse, and I'm going to take a lot of shit from that, but look at Paul Bocuse. You know, sure, he's a father of everything, but still today, when you arrive in his restaurant, there is, li- there is black men dressed in little red monkey uniforms at the entrance as doorman. My son found it shocking. I find it shocking. I guess nobody else do, you know. And for me, this is a, a form of passive, passive racism. You know, if you only hire somebody of color to be the doorman in your restaurant and those doorman are dressed like a little monkey in a circus, you know, and you can Google it, look at those photos, that shocked me, you know, and I don't want to be part of that because things are not, doesn't have to be that way. So, you know, we're touching the subject of racism, of bigotry, 
and it's everywhere, but I think it's more prominent in France. We still have a long way to go in France. But is there one restaurant kitchen that you would have loved to have worked in? Or one chef that you would have loved to have worked for? Um, no, because I was I was loyal to Chef Ducasse. He was very good to me, and I was good to him. And Ducasse was, you know, he has this, I don't know, his, this fa- fatherly, fatherly feeling. You know, when he speaks to you, you just melt. Because, you know, I, keep in mind, I met him after his plane crash. So I don't know if you remember the story. He, he, I think he, has, he was consulting for a restaurant in uh, Courchevel. He took a plane back with his crew. A small plane crashed. He was the only survivor. And he has this, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, and I met him right after the crash, maybe a year and a half, where he was walking around with canes. His hair was like looking on the side. And he was, you know, so anchor, anchored on the moment. I felt this guy is like, you know, he cares. I felt like he cared about his cooks. And only after I, I know the story that he was the only one to survive and he felt very guilty for a long time after. And, you know, I think Ducasse was for me like, you know, the guy who said, you know, you can do it. And he was always supportive. When I came to him, I said, chef, I'm going to America. And he's like, sure, go. And if you're tired of it, call me and you come back with me. He never said anything else. He said, yeah, go, 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 go. Go explore, go see. And yeah, that's what I like about him. I will go back to his kitchen. You've just mentioned that you moved to uh, America. How old were you when you went there? Uh, 23. Okay, so still pretty young. Oh, yeah. yeah, Naive as you can be. Backpack, no plan, very little money. Um, you know, we, we, I have a friend who went the year before. He was a waiter. His name was Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus went to LA and he kept, you know, no email of that type, nothing. But we will get postcards. He said, oh, guys, you have to come. We have to come. So you're later with a friend. I'm like, you know what? Let's get backpack and we go. And so we, uh, first we flew to New York because I have some cooks we work with, in, you know, in New York. And we stay in New York. And it was the typical New York experience when I arrived. You know, I was like, you know, n- no scared, fairly naive, uh, and I just loved it, you know, just the way people walk, talk, eat. You know, I, nev- I felt I belonged right away. I never felt as a foreigner, um, you know, and, you know, and it was a New York experience where for breakfast we go to a diner, and to that day I still eat for breakfast the same when I go out, two eggs over easy with a um, toast. <laughs> It's not very French of you. <laughs> yeah, I know, but because that was my first breakfast in America with, uh, what was his name? Patrick, I think. No, uh, I forgot his name. And, you know, the elevator was the one operated with the cage and somebody was moving it up and down. I remember watching at two o'clock in the morning on public television. So on, uh, I never had, I never seen cable in France because we did not have, we have five channels. But in New York, you had cable. We have the cable box. And I remember watching Iron Chef from Japan at two o'clock in the morning on just local, um, because in the US, uh, there is like public cable. So you can buy your time and put whatever you want. So there is a wacky story. There is weird stuff. But there was the Iron Chef, the real one from Japan at two o'clock in the morning. And I would watch it. I said, well, that this is nuts. This is crazy. But that was 20 years before um, uh, the Food Network, you know. 
And uh, yeah, I love, I love this eccentricity. Um, we ate in a restaurant again, you know. We had a David Boulet restaurant. We had a Chanterelle. And we felt welcome, you know. And those were the restaurant of New York. That was the top of the top. Yet, as a young guy, I was feeling welcome. I was respected. I was never looked down that when you go to France, if you don't have the right jacket or a tie, you know, you cannot sit at that table. In New York, it's like, yeah, come spend money with us and have fun. And, you know, that was I like. And I stayed in New York, not to work. We just enjoyed for three weeks. Then I moved to LA to see Rezus, my friend Rezus. And it was no Rezus at the airport. So we ended up with my friend staying in Inglewood in a motel, you know, 25 bucks a night. Uh, it was a weird experience, but again, I was naive. I was just, I think my eyes were like wide open to Course. the new yeah. things. And then couldn't find a job, uh, starting to run out of money. And then I found a job in a pizzeria downtown LA on Olive Street in the late 80s. Today is a bit better, but in the late 80s, that was scary. That was full of gangs. And after 5 p.m., there is nobody. It's just homeless and gangs on the street. So we work in that pizza and we live inside for a week because they have no, nowhere else to play, making pizza. The guy was an old uh, Russian Jewish immigrant. And, um, you know, we, uh, we uh, you know, I wasn't scared. I was just, um, you know, this is cool. This is cool. You know, we're having a good time here. And then I met an amazing chef who really took me under his umbrella. And his name was Joachim Sprichel, who, you know, who today run, I, th I think he sold everything. But at that time, he was the upcoming uh, with um, uh, the chef from Spago was the uh, you know, upcoming chef in the US. And we opened a restaurant called Patina uh, 25, 27 years ago. That was a place to go eat. He never became famous like Wolfgang Puck, but Joachim, I think today in LA, probably a quarter of the chef in LA went work, work for him at one point or another. Um, and Joachim was like, he was the opposite of Ducasse. He was cold, distant, very hard to work with, but he was an excellent uh, boss. Teach me how to embrace American culture he told me, he said, if you're going to come here to cook French food, you're wasting your time, pack your bags, go back to France. But if you come here and embrace what people want, you're going to become very successful. And I worked with him in Carmel, Monterey, left and right. And he made me understood that in the US, there is culture. There is something called pop culture. There is some, you know, there is immigrants coming from all over the place. And he said, in your kitchen, you're going to have immigrants from Mexico, San Salvador, you know, those guys know how to cook. And he told me, remember, he said, those guys are the best cooks you're going to work with. And I'm like, how? You know, because again, I was conditioned as a French cook. You know, I thought the French were the hot shit. <laughs> then I work along Mexican cooks and those guys are fantastic. You know, now never been to cooking school, but they work hard. They know how to cook. They understand flavors. They, they um, you know, and, and I was, you know, I always say, you know, when you work in a kitchen full of, you know, Latin cooks, when somebody is starving, he's going to cook for everybody else around. If you work in a kitchen with just Americans, if he's starving, he's going to cook, he's going to make a sandwich for himself. So the dynamic is different, you know. The team spirit is different. And working in that kitchen in Los Angeles in the late 80s and 90s for me was high opening. 
I was the time I have my first mole sauce. You know, all those things are very complex. Uh, my first taco, my first burrito, my first. Uh, we used to go to uh, uh, El, po El, Polo, El Pollo Loco to get to get uh, charcoal grilled chicken with uh, Mexican sauce, and it was so good, simple, but so good. And with Joaquim, we learned to do stuff that people enjoy, to be different, to be. You know, we used to make a corn creme brulee. A know? corn cream, yum. Yeah, we used delicious. to make corn candy. It. We used to infuse a cream with popcorn, strain it, and that creme brulee was amazing. You know, now if I do that creme brulee in France, I'm going to be fired. The the problem is I have is I love Mexican food as well, and I love to cook it here. But uh, trying to actually find corn is a problem here because, yeah, because we the French just don't like it. it. It's for, yeah, they feed the pig and, and use it yeah. cart for fuel for the yeah. carts. Um, so, yes, it's interesting. So that that inspired me. I'm like, this is what I want to do. You know, and we used to go to farmers market. We used to yeah, that was. In, you know, I always say, you know, open space creates an open mind. Small space narrow your mind. And, you know, the U.S. is a huge country and you can drive it and just be inspired by everything around you. And for me, I was inspired working along, you know, cooks from Mexico, barely spoke English, but they, they were teaching me, you know. You know, we, did, we never spoke, the, I learned Spanish in Mexican kitchen, but they were telling to me in Spanish what to do, and I understood somehow because they were good at what they were doing. And Joachim ended up building a huge empire, you know, of Pinot Bistro, Patina. We used to do catering for the Emmys, the Grammys, <clears throat> by the thousand. And I never done this. I learned how to cook in volume, high quality food. And I've seen it in LA with other chefs like Michel Richard. You know, he had a restaurant called, um, what's his name? Uh, Citrus, Citrus in LA in the late 80s, they would do 400 covers a day, a night. Wow. Top quality food. You know, and I would look at that kitchen. You know, in France, you do 40 covers, you're in a shit, you're, you cannot do it anymore. You know, in LA, you know, the whole system built up around how to produce high quality food a night. And I look at the lines, <clears throat> they were doing things. It's like, those guys are genius, you know. You cannot do it in France, but you can do it in the US. And, uh, so I, I loved it. I, I loved every minute, every moment. I felt at home. I never felt as a foreigner. Um, I think there's the beauty of America or any country outside of Europe. I think you are encouraged, you are judged on what you did today. They don't care what you did yesterday. You you are judged on the last dish you did. You know, people are thrilled about new things. People are very curious. You know, you could say, yeah, they are less judgmental. I agree. I think French were maybe a bit too judgmental. In the U.S., people are more, you know, extremely curious. You know, they don't, they are not critical the way we are in Europe, but they do enjoy life better. They, and I think it creates that huge market for creativity, you know, when, you know, and pop culture is a, is a result of that, you know, create and see the reaction and then, Move on. And I think you can apply to food as well. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient, or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it. 
and I'm sure many of our fabulously delicious audience would too. So get in touch, slide into my DMs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on Fabulously Delicious. Trying all this uh, fabulous new food that you, you're getting influenced by there, the mole and, and things like that. Did you ever think of becoming a cuisine chef as opposed to a pastry chef? So I did. Uh, so in France, I was I became a chocolatier <clears throat> with a diploma. But when I worked for Ducas, on my day off, I would work in a fish station ah. because that was the hardest station to learn uh, in his restaurant. And, um, and, you know, keep in mind, a fish station in France, you get your fish at 10 a.m. delivered. Uh, you have an hour and a half to set up everything for your service starting at noon. So it was a fat, fast pace. Uh, all the fish was amazing. I mean, nothing caught in the net, all line caught fish. Early in the morning, they will be delivered. I think probably still moving. So I learned that, you know, speed, organization, how to burn your fingers and move on, you know. And, uh, and I always loved cooking. But when I moved to the States, I moved there with the idea I would become a chocolatier, but there was nobody making chocolates. Actually. The only chocolate shop was good Iva. No, there was no, there was no chocolate artisan when I moved to the States. The way you have to, the bean to bar concept was non-existent. Hershey's, you know, people ask me, "What do you work for?" You know, good Iva Hershey's. I said, "No, I'm, I want to do." So it was not the concept. So I did pastry, <clears throat> but I always work on my on the side in the kitchen too, and. Uh, I became a recognized pastry chef in the U.S., but often on my day off, you know, I will go work one day with Joachim in the kitchen because I love that rush, that crazy moment, that speed, that, you know, cooking and pastry is different world. I always say cooking is it's to, to feed an instant need. You, you cook because you're starving at the core. You have to survive. You're going to harvest, fish, hunt to feed yourself. Baking is different. Pastry is different. You do it for celebration, for pleasure, for to share with people. So it's different approach, you know. Uh, baking, pastry, it's planning, it's chemistry. Cooking, it's all at the last minute. It's all um, making something crazy. So I, I love the two aspects. But I did become more successful in baking and pastries and cooking in the States. And and at that time, everyone everyone wanted a pastry chef. That was a time where pastry chefs were making more than restaurant chefs in LA. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, you moved to New York, you could ask for a six-figure in early 90s as a pastry chef in a top restaurant. So there was that wave of, uh, you know, uh, food network, pastry magazines. Uh, at that time, I think it was 20 of us who were in high demand for, for pastry. You now live in Canada. Why did you move to Canada and when? Uh, it, 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 it was a strange circumstances. So I was living in New York, working with Four Seasons Hotel, and then I wanted to do something on my own. So uh, an investor approached me out of Toronto. He said, oh, I'm doing this new concept in Toronto. And now Toronto 25 years ago for food was maybe five big restaurants. And that's it. So he came to me and he loved what I was doing. He said, I'm opening this fancy pastry shop slash restaurant slash retail concept on Bloor Street. Bloor Street is, is like Les Champs-Élysées in Paris. Would you mind to come? And I'm like, sure. 
and we talk more and I'm like yeah it, yeah as I'm like why not so he will he will have me doing uh, apply to a, for a business visa and so every three months I have to renew that visa at the consul the Canadian consulate and sometimes it was difficult and you know it was a bit difficult and and the lawyer from Canada so I will do your landed immigrants and I'm like I don't need it because I'm a U.S. At that time, I was already a U.S. citizen. And um, so never heard about it, but I did my stint in Toronto for two years. I would fly back and forth, Toronto, New York, and then we opened in Washington, D.C. So my, my circuit was Washington, D.C., Toronto, Toronto, New York, because that was my home, Washington, D.C. So I was flying nonstop, three flights a week. Loved it, you know, making great money and and doing in Toronto something nobody's seen it, like a high-concept French pastry restaurant. You know, I mean, nobody heard about Yuzu in Toronto in, in 98. We, we, we used to do stuff with Yuzu. Nobody knew what it was, you know. And uh, so that was great. And then um, left the concept, open my own place in San Francisco, uh, a restaurant, because I always loved the north, northern coast of California. I've always been a big fan. You know, keep in mind, when I moved to the States after a few months, I moved and lived in Carmel, Monterey, which one of the most beautiful places on earth. Love it. It's like paradise. I still go back every two, three years. And I always loved San Francisco as a food town was just, you know, um, an amazing place. You know, you could see the synergy of the weather was like so unique. You know, uh, it's cold in summer warm in winter, you know, uh, there is a light, the light, the daylight in San Francisco because, you know, the way the sun moves and there's a lot of white building in San Francisco, it's very bright, very, um, you know, and then around 2 p.m., this is a fog coming from the ocean and the city becomes chilled and cold and you're looking for a warm place. I love that dynamic. And so I opened a place in San Francisco and I realized San Francisco was a tough city to cook. Uh, you know, it's a small town, San Francisco. It's probably the, um, the sixth largest city in California. It's not, you know, uh, San Jose is bigger. Sacramento, I think, is a bit bigger now. And San, San Francisco, you know, it relies on tourism and convention. That's your bread and butter for a restaurant. And if they don't come, you don't do business. The local don't eat as much. You know, that, in 2000, was I opened in 2002, there was great restaurants in San Jose. Nobody would drive from San Jose to San Francisco. So it was a bit tough. I did get a great review with Michael Bauer, the food critic from the Chronicle. You know, he gave me two and a half, two and a half stars from my restaurant. And then the business like boomed, packed overnight. And, you know, and then it's not good. To be busy overnight is never good for a restaurant. Couldn't manage properly. And, um, and then we get hit with back to back with a war in Iraq. So that year, no European moved to San, went to San Francisco very little because there was this climate of the French didn't go with us. And, you know, and San Francisco, it's a very anti-war, peaceful city, but, you know, no, it was no tourism that year. And then we have the SARS issue too, you know, the, um, a lot of people cancel. Yeah. <clears throat> the business went belly up and I have to drop out from the restaurant, close it because I wasn't making money, you know, and San Francisco, it's tough for restaurants. In good time, it's difficult. So in bad time, it was uh, a nightmare. And then that within three months, I get in a mail my, uh, from the Canadian immigration that I was accepted to move to Canada. That was like, yeah, pure coincidence. And, and I always love Vancouver. You know, I will come to Vancouver often from San Francisco to our flight. 
And Vancouver at that time was still cheap. You could rent a condo in a waterfront for $600, $700 Canadian, which is not the case anymore. So I, I kind of have a little getaway home in Vancouver. Exchange rate was great, two hours flight. And then when I'm like, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take, you know, I deserve a break. So close my restaurant, sold all the equipment, what I can, and moved to Canada. And I'm like, life is good here. You know, life. Um, and then I met my uh, my son's mom. She became pregnant. And I was supposed to move back to the States uh, because I was, um, Four Seasons Hotel wanted me to do a new project. And the, my GM from New York was part of that project in California. Uh, the new four seasons at Wetless Village, but because medical insurance will not cover her <clears throat> for her pregnancy, I'm like, I cannot do it. You know, I'm staying in Canada. And this struggle a little because, you know, Canada is a different ball game, it's a different market. You don't get paid the same. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, now it's better, but in 2002, 2003, Vancouver, if you ask for, 50 grand for a chef position. People look at you with eyes like this. It's not the same kind of, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. You know, uh, yeah, it's very reserved, very, um, you know, they, they do copy a lot in Canada, I find, in terms of restaurant. It's better today, but, you know, you could go to Vancouver restaurant 25 years, 20 years ago, and it was all speed copies of restaurants in LA and San Francisco. I won't give any names, but you know, those guys went to San Francisco to, to learn. So, um, you know, you do have to learn one way or another, but. Uh... What a fabulous chat with Bruno. Next week, we dive into all things Great Canadian Bake Off. Don't forget, if you like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast around with your friends and family that are into food or just love podcasts. I love to be shared around. I'm Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me every week here on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.